On January 3rd, 1997, Karen King is at her family home in Saginaw. While she was enrolled at Michigan State University, Karen was on break between terms from her studies and staying with her parents, Greg and Linda. She'd had a lovely holiday with her parents and was enjoying the last few days of break before returning to campus. 18-year-old Karen was studying psychology. She wanted to be a child psychologist because, according to her father, there were so many troubled kids in the world that she wanted to help. The slender young woman with long, dark hair had worked at Kellogg Center, a hotel and conference center near the Michigan State campus, but what she really wanted was to find work at a daycare provider. Locating a job in her field, something part-time while she continued her studies, it was on her to-do list when she returned to campus the next week. Karen and her father were cooking dinner that Friday night, taco night at the King home, when they discovered, oops, they didn't have any taco shells. Ever the helpful child, Karen offered to go to a nearby market and pick some up. Karen took the family's 1991 white Chevrolet Blazer to the Genesee Market, located at 1115 West Genesee Avenue. Dad put the finishing touches on the meal as he waited for Karen to return with taco shells. The market was just a few blocks from the house. This should have been a quick trip, taking no more than 30 minutes. And that long, only if the store was really busy. At 7.41 p.m., one hour and 26 minutes after Karen left for the store, Greg King reported his daughter missing to police. A check of the market's parking lot showed no sign of Karen or the family's white SUV. The store's clerk did confirm that she'd come in and made a purchase. At 8.15 p.m., Saginaw police received a 911 call. The caller said that at 6.45, more than an hour earlier, they saw two men in their late teens or early 20s force a woman into a white Chevy Blazer in the parking lot of the Genesee Market. If you're wondering what took them so long to make the call, well, the caller wasn't sure if they should report what they saw. It was only after telling their mother what happened that she told them it should be reported to police. I can't say how long it took to connect this 911 call to the missing person report on Karen King. Meanwhile, the King family is frantically looking for Karen. Calls are made. They even drove around looking for her, but there's no sign of Karen and no sign of the family car. At 11.30 a.m. on Saturday, about 18 hours after she went missing, Karen's body is found near an auto salvage yard on the east side of Saginaw. Hours later, the family's white Chevy Blazer is recovered in the parking lot of a Saginaw church. As investigators look over the remains of 18-year-old Karen King, it's clear from the state of her body that Karen was the victim of a homicide. The college student had been beaten, raped, stabbed, and strangled. And I've read conflicting reports about whether she was dressed when she was found, but it appears that she was partially nude when recovered. Everyone that knew Karen was stunned and saddened by her murder. Karen's father said, she was our little girl, and we thought she was perfect. The young women who lived alongside Karen in Emmons Hall at Michigan State University were shaken. Lisa Marco, an 18-year-old who lived across the hall from Karen, she was quoted as saying, it's real quiet. It's not the way you want to come back to school. Lisa Rada, the resident assistant at Emmons Hall, said that students who lived on the same floor as Karen were just in shock. Karen's death was especially hard on her two roommates. Normally, there were only two people in a dorm room, 
but the three got along so well that they volunteered to stay in a room together. The university rallied around returning students, arranging for a grief counselor to be on call for those who needed support in the wake of her murder. She was a quiet girl, but an excellent student and a fine citizen, said Thomas Sharp, principal of Saginaw Arthur Hill High School, where Karen graduated in 1996. Principal Sharp went on to say that Karen was a popular student who was a member of the pom-pom squad. We're all taking it real bad. We had a number of students call in and say they weren't coming in today because of it. Karen's former economics teacher, Calvin Mott, described her as a very quiet, well-mannered girl, very well-liked by the other kids. When police looked into Karen's background, they realized that not everything was roses for Karen at Michigan State. Lisa Rada helped Karen file a police complaint the previous September. Someone had been making harassing phone calls to her and one of her roommates. Karen called Lisa about a week after the call started, and that's when she helped her file a report. Once the report was made, the calls stopped. Saginaw police looked into the calls, wondering if they could be connected to her violent murder, but investigators determined the calls were not related to what happened in Saginaw. On January 10th, a week after Karen's body was found, authorities asked the public for help with the case. While they had the 911 call, they didn't have much to go on as to the identities of the men seen forcing Karen into the family vehicle. Police asked anyone with information about the abduction, or anyone who was at the Genesee market that night, to please call Saginaw Police. And I don't know if the subsequent arrests were spurred by the request for information, or if a good Samaritan turned them in, but Saginaw Police arrested 25-year-old August M. Williams. The next day, his 15-year-old cousin, Shaitur T. Williams, was also arrested. Both men were arraigned days later in a Saginaw courtroom. The accused did not address the court, and not guilty pleas were entered on their behalf. Because they have the same last name, Williams, I will be referring to them by their first names for the rest of the episode. Now, at this point, August and Shaitour are facing charges of first-degree murder, kidnapping, carjacking, criminal sexual conduct, armed robbery, conspiracy, and use of a firearm to commit a felony. And looking at this giant list of charges, I have two thoughts. One, they threw a lot of charges at them hoping something would stick. And two, police and prosecutors may have been waiting for evidence to come back from the lab. Evidence that they hoped would shore up their case against the cousins. They piled on the charges to keep the men in custody in the meanwhile. And as luck would have it, although not in Shaitour's favor, just two days before Karen's abduction and murder, a law passed in Michigan making it easier for juveniles to be tried as adults for certain violent crimes. It was called the Juvenile Justice Reform Act, and it gave prosecutors discretion to have juveniles aged 14 to 16 tried and sentenced as adults for violent crimes. Before this law went into effect, judges could only sentence juveniles convicted in an adult court under laws governing juvenile proceedings. At most, a juvenile could be held until age 21. Because the law was changed, Shaitour was looking at a mandatory life sentence if convicted on the murder charge. Saginaw County Prosecutor Michael Thomas, he was happy to charge Shaitour as an adult, saying, quote, These are adult crimes of the most brutal kind. 
and that is why the 15-year-old will be prosecuted as an adult. This is precisely the type of crime that the new Juvenile Justice Reform Act was meant to address. Prosecutor Thomas went on to describe the crime as a senseless tragedy which involved the forcible abduction of a complete stranger. The carjacking escalated into a personal robbery, criminal sexual conduct, kidnapping, terror, and murder. Knowing the full details of what happened to young Karen King when she crossed paths with Shaitour in August, Prosecutor Thompson had no qualms about charging 15-year-old Shaitour as an adult. And while the 15-year-old had not had much contact with the authorities previously, the same could not be said for his cousin August. Just three months before the murder, on October 31, 1996, August was paroled from state prison after serving just over three years for attempted breaking and entering. He was originally sentenced to 90 days in boot camp, but when August would not obey the rules and requirements of boot camp, he was resentenced to time in prison. And while in prison, August was not a good inmate. During his time, he collected more than 30 misconducts. Seven times he disobeyed a direct order and was in an unauthorized place. Four times he was with another inmate in an area without permission. Three times corrections officers reported him as insolent and practicing intimidating or threatening behavior. And twice he assaulted and battered an employee or prisoner, possessed contraband, and violated prison rules. Listeners, I'm curious what that contraband was, but that information was not made public. August was rejected for parole twice, once in 1994 and again in 1995. The parole board cited his frequent misconduct as the reason why he should not be released. August was finally granted parole in July of 1996 and left the Muskegon Correctional Facility on October 31st. Prior to that, he'd been shuffled from prisons in Manistee, Carson City, Ionia, and Jackson. And again, I'd like to know why he was moved around so much during his sentence. The plan was that the two cousins, Shaitour and August, would be tried separately because each man blamed the other for what happened to Karen King. As August was arrested and interviewed long before police were aware of Shaitour, he blamed Shaitour for the crime. After he was arrested and learned what his cousin said about the events leading to the death of Karen King, Shaitour admitted his part of the crime, but placed the blame for the murder and criminal sexual conduct on his cousin. Listeners, we'll be right back. While the two suspects, Shaitour and August, each claimed the other was responsible for what happened that night, here is what investigators were able to piece together after interviewing both Williams and speaking to other eyewitnesses. Karen King went to the Genesee Market and purchased taco shells. As she exited the store, she was approached by August and Shaitour. They'd been standing outside of the market near the payphone. It's unclear if their plans were to rob her, carjack her, or both. But one of them, likely August, grabbed her as she was getting into the blazer. There was a struggle. Karen was overpowered and forced into the back of the vehicle. August got into the driver's seat and Shaitour got into the passenger side. This part of the attack was witnessed by the bystander who eventually called 911, but not until more than an hour after the incident happened. August drove the blazer to the house of his friend, Emmett Davis. 
Another man, Courtney Noel, was also at the Davis house when August and Shytor arrived in the blazer with Karen in the back seat. Courtney knew Karen was in the back seat because August showed her to him. He opened the back door of the blazer and Karen was there, and she appeared to be in distress. There was a mask or scarf covering her face. The girl was pleading for help. August then showed Noel what he described as some kind of cap gun or something. Noel would also testify that August told him he was, quote, going to do this bitch. August then gifted him $20 in cash from Karen's purse. August handed Emmett Davis two of Karen's identification cards. Von Tisha Houston, who was also at the Davis home, testified that she saw August give him the two forms of identification, and then August said, she won't need them. Von Tisha told her mother what she saw, and her mother is the one who related this information to law enforcement. Also, during the trial, Tina Gray testified that on January 3, 1997, between 7 and 9 p.m., she was driving down Euclid Street, the location where Karen's body was ultimately found, and she saw two men standing near a white blazer. One of the men was holding a woman who appeared limp. A few minutes later, she saw the blazer speed by. Tina identified August and Shaitour as the men she saw standing near the blazer. After dumping Karen's body on Euclid Street, August and Shaitour went to the home of Sonia Armstrong. Sonia appeared in court to testify that when she saw them, August was in possession of a CD player and a car phone that matched the description of items Karen had in her possession prior to the abduction. Kelly Barber, August's cousin, testified that he gave her rings that Karen's father would later identify as belonging to Karen. Shivani Williams, another cousin of August's, testified that August had a flare gun that was taped together. And this could be the weapon that Courtney Noel described as being like a cap gun. From what I can tell, August didn't actually have a handgun, just this janky flare gun that he was passing off like it was a real weapon. Shivani went on to testify that August talked about Karen King and had admitted to, quote, snapping her neck. He said, I had to take her out. She seen my face. He went on to say, man, I had sex with her. Which, no, you didn't have sex with Karen King. You raped Karen King. Big difference. The evidence against August and Shaitour was abundant. Officers recovered several of Karen's identification cards and credit cards, as well as a flare gun matching the one in August and Shaitour's possession. When August was arrested and searched, he had Karen King's pager with him. And when crime scene analysts checked the King family blazer, they found traces of Karen's blood. There was also a semen stain that was matched to August through DNA testing. Shaitour was excluded as a contributor of the semen and blood found in the blazer. And as an aside, I assume the family would eventually have the vehicle returned to them, you know, once the trial was over, but I don't know if there's an auto detailer capable of cleaning that vehicle thoroughly enough. Shaitour's testimony at trial painted the picture of an unwilling participant in the crime. After August pushed Karen into the blazer, he motioned for Shaitour to get inside. Shaitour claimed that there was no discussion of robbing or killing Karen before getting her into the blazer. After two blocks, Shaitour asked August to let him out of the blazer, but August refused. When August stopped the vehicle a time later, Shaitour told him, Man, I ain't even in this. When Shaitour asked again to be let out of the vehicle, he said he felt something on the back of his neck, so he shut the door and began driving. 
The implication here is that a weapon was held to Shaitura's neck, leading to his continued participation in the rape and murder of Karen King. Later, Shaitur pulled the vehicle to the side of the road and saw Karen in the back seat with the seatbelt twisted around her throat. August had his knee on the back of her neck. August then asked Shaitur to give him 10 or 15 minutes. So Shaitur walked away. When the time was up, August pulled a partially nude Karen King out of the back of the car. Shaitur said he was not responsible for the assault on Karen. He said he never choked, raped, or robbed her. That was all on his cousin August. But listeners, there is no denying that Shaitur was in the vehicle while these things took place. David Stevens, who worked for the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, testified that he found foot impressions inside of the blazer that were consistent with the footwear worn by Shaitur, as well as a hair sample from the rear seat that was consistent with Shaitur's hair. Two prior statements made by Shaitur were admitted as evidence into the trial. His attorneys objected to their admittance, but they were overruled by the judge. The first statement was his 50-minute taped-recorded confession to the police less than an hour and a half after his arrest on January 11, 1997. His attorneys argued that prior to the statement he made to police after his arrest, the police officers improperly denied his request to speak with an attorney or with his parents. This is a violation of his Miranda rights. Keep in mind, he's only 15. He should not be spoken to without a parent or an attorney present. Detective Sergeant Howie, the officer who interviewed him, took the stand. He said that after he introduced himself and his partner, Detective Snyder, he asked Shaitur to verify his identity. After getting the formalities out of the way, Howie indicated to Shaitur that he was there because of the death of Karen King. When Shaitur asked how his name was brought into the investigation, Howie answered they got his name from his cousin, August Williams. The teenager seemed surprised by that and told the officers, I'm not sure if I can believe that. It was then that Howie told Shaitur that the conversation had been taped and asked if he was interested in listening. Well, no surprise here, he was interested in listening to the recording. Schneider then left the interview room and came back with the audio of August Williams. They played back about a minute of the hour-long tape for Shaitur, where August's voice appears on the tape and indicates how Shaitur was involved in the crime. Howie then testified that Shaitur became very excited and wanted to talk. The second statement that was entered into evidence was made to a juvenile detention youth specialist named Kenneth Mayo the following morning. When Kenneth saw Shaitur rubbing his hands all over his face, he said, What's up? And Shaitur responded, They snitched on me, man. My cousin and my family snitched on me. Kenneth asked Shaitur what he meant by that, and he responded, I could have got away, man. They snitched on me because, man, my cousin, man, he kept saying he wanted to get paid. Kenneth asked Shaitur what he was talking about, and he told Kenneth he'd picked up a girl at a store with his cousin and they'd forced her into the car with a gun. He said they drove around with the girl in the back seat, harassing her, touching her. Kenneth testified that the teenager said, We killed her, man. We raped her after she was dead. On cross-examination, Kenneth admitted that in an earlier statement he told police that Shaitur said he was feeling all over her and, you know, just sexually harassing her. He then said that it was his cousin who killed and raped her. 
During a suppression hearing prior to the trial, Shaitour's attorney argued that Mayo's testimony was inadmissible because he had not advised Shaitour of his Miranda rights prior to conducting an in-custody interrogation. The trial court, they rejected this argument. They said, look, there's no police-initiated interrogation and therefore no need to give a Miranda warning. His attorneys also tried to argue that the teen's statements were inadmissible because he was under the influence of marijuana at the time he made them. However, the court rejected the argument and found that Shaitour still had the mental capability to understand his rights. Not only could he understand them, but he also voluntarily waived them by signing the waiver form and giving the police his statement. In August of 1997, a jury found 16-year-old Shaitour guilty of first-degree murder, carjacking, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. He was sentenced to mandatory life imprisonment for the murder conviction, concurrent life terms of imprisonment for the carjacking and conspiracy convictions, and a mandatory consecutive two-year term of imprisonment for the felony firearm. On October 16, 1997, a jury found 25-year-old August Williams guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, first-degree felony murder, first-degree criminal sexual conduct, and felony firearm. It only took jurors two hours to reach their conclusion. August was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the first-degree murder convictions. Then he was sentenced to life imprisonment for the conspiracy conviction and the carjacking conviction. These sentences are to run concurrently with the first-degree murder sentence. August was sentenced to a mandatory two years imprisonment for felony firearm, and that is also to run consecutively with the other sentences. The court vacated the convictions for armed robbery, kidnapping, and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. Both August and Shaitour made the rounds of appeals. August's appeals were based on jury selection. He felt that he did not get fair representation on the jury and that some of the jury members were going to be biased against him from the start, especially one juror because she was a young white woman like Karen. August also argued that he did not receive effective counsel during his trial. All of his appeals have been denied. Shaitour's appeals, they've been based on his statements made both to police and to Kenneth Mayo. Besides the arguments he made pre-trial, he also argued that he was too young to understand his rights as they were explained to him, that his ninth grade education was not enough to give him an understanding of what exactly he was getting himself into. His attorney also filed a writ of habeas corpus, which is a request on behalf of someone held in detention or a prisoner for a judge to order prison officials to bring an inmate to court for the purpose of determining if the person has been lawfully incarcerated. All of Shaitour's appeals have been denied. And listeners, it is possible, based on issues we discussed in earlier episodes, particularly if you look back at the murder of Stephanie Dubay, it's possible that Shaitour Williams could be resentenced. Remember, he was just 15 years old at the time of his involvement with the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of Karen King. And I'll be keeping an eye on his case to see if anything develops. Shaitour is being held at the Muskegon Correctional Facility. August is being held at the Lakeland Correctional Facility. And Karen King? She's buried at St. Andrew's Cemetery in Saginaw, Michigan. We've had several requests for this case to be covered, but I think that Jeremiah was the first to suggest this one. I'd hope to do a much deeper look at the case because it's resolved, but Saginaw police were asking about $1,500 for the FOIA request I submitted. 
and unfortunately, that's not in the budget right now. This week's episode was written by Brittany Martinez. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.